0: Welcome to the Valley Beit Midrash podcast, a program of Valley Beit Midrash, a global center of learning and action. We're bringing you the best in diverse, pluralistic Jewish wisdom, all with the goal of improving lives in our global community. I'm Rabbi Shmuley Yanklowitz. Let's get started. Hi friends, thanks so much for being here. We're so happy to be learning with you today. Today we're in for a treat to um, learn on the topic, Speaking Truth to Power with Dr. Russ Linden. Russ is a management educator and author of six books. Since the mid 1980s, he's taught public and nonprofit executives and managers about leadership, collaboration, the human side of change, resilience, crisis leadership, and related topics. His latest book is Loss and Discovery, What the Torah Can Teach Us About Leading Change. He's been an adjunct faculty member at the University of Virginia and the Federal Executive Institute for over 35 years. In 2003, he was the Williams Distinguished Visiting Scholar at State University of New York, Fredonia School of Business. He has consulted with numerous government agencies and elected officials, as well as nonprofits in the U.S. and Israel. Russ is a former president of his congregation, where he sometimes gives the Devar Torah during Shabbat services. He was the president of the local Jewish federation and served on the University of Virginia Hillel board. Russ has bachelor's and master's degrees from the University of Michigan. He has a PhD in organizational leadership from the University of Virginia. His volunteer activities include leading an organization that works to make the community more open and welcoming for refugees and immigrants. He and his wife live in Charlottesville. They've had two adult children and three grandchildren. I've got to know Russ over recent years and I've just uh, been in awe of his intellect and passion and mental height. So Russ, thanks so much for being here.
1: Thank you so much, Raf Shmuley. Uh, I wanna start by thanking you and thanking Valley Bait Mizrash for this opportunity. And I want to say something um, that comes from the heart. Uh, I've been involved with social justice movements throughout my life, and I love the part of the Torah that teaches us how to teach truth to po- how to speak truth to power. But in a way, rosh Shmuley ought to be talking on this topic. Shmuley, every week is posting something in social media where he's raising our consciousness about some people who are not being treated well, someone who's in jail and maybe facing uh, capital punishment charges, um, doing things through Uri Lestetic, uh, modern orthodox um, social justice organization. I think the first orthodox social justice organization, Shmuley. Shmuley is out there every day. He's written the book literally and figuratively on this topic. So Shmuley, as well as everyone, if uh, I hope people will make comments and ask questions and that'll be enriching the conversation. What does the tradition say about speaking truth to power? It's important. There are some important uh, pieces of the text. What can make it difficult? I don't want this to be kind of pie in the sky. We need to go into this with our eyes open. So we'll talk about both successes and non-successes. Several examples from the Torah. After Cain kills Abel, there's an argument with God that's interesting and and instructive. Uh, Abraham and God, when God is ready to wipe out Sodom and Abraham has the famous negotiation, what if there are 50 righteous Moses and God, after the terrible sin of the golden calf, which, by the way, the golden calf was uh, something that probably most people on this telecast know, was a huge sin coming just weeks after Moses, for the first time, has given the people the Ten Commandments, the second of which is, thou shall have no other gods before me. Don't bow down to graven images. And what do the people do? They demand Aaron make them a golden calf. (laughs) Moses was delayed, and they got scared. And then finally, one of my favorite, and I wish it was more well known, uh, Shmuley and others, is just a sh- two short pieces of, in, in numbers, of about the five wonderful daughters of Zulokhahad, who after their father dies, ask Moses and then God to change the law in terms of inheritance. And this is a happily ever after story. Shmuley, I don't know about you, but I don't know of any other time in the Torah where people say, change a law, and God says, they're right. Is there another instance?
0: Well, um, actually, um, there is the the case, for example, of those who want to stay east of the Jordan, who don't want to enter Israel.
2: Right.
0: um, They, uh, you know, everybody was supposed to go to Israel. Then they requested not to go. And God allows it after the fact.
1: So that
0: might be another good example.
1: That's a great example. I think there were some conditions. for them to stay. Yes,
0: exactly. They have to fight first.
1: During yeah. The battle, right. Thanks. So again, I encourage you to ask questions, post questions in the chat, and Alex will help me with those. And so let's get started. What does the Torah teach us? Famous statement in the Midrash, there are 70 faces to the Torah, 70 ways to understand the text, the sentences, even a word. And it invites us to argue with each other and ourselves and to try to dig deeper and not take it at face value. That's what Midrashim are all about is to help fill in the blanks. Rabbi Joseph Sachs of blessed memory, just a couple of years ago, we lost him argument and hearing contrary views is the essence of religious life. There's a wonderful piece that he wrote that says, God loves those who argue. Now, how do we accept that responsibility? How do we take it on ourselves to argue? Well, there's another famous statement in, in Deuteronomy. Moses is finishing up his uh, various talks to the people before he ends his, his life is ended. And the statement is, Lo bashamayim hi. It, meaning Torah, meaning God's word, it's not up in heaven. It's not beyond us. It's not over the sea. It's close to us. It's in our mouth. It's in our heart that we should do it and understand it. And the rabbis have been interpreting that over the years, over the ages, to say, once God gave us the Torah, it's for us to make sense. We can't say, well, it's just following the text, because the text has lots of things that can be, again, seen in so many different ways. It really empowers us to do what we're talking about today, arguing in terms of wrestling, trying to find out what might the meaning be. Um In the Talmud, it says the Talmud is an anthology of arguments. Rabbi X says this, Rabbi Y says that. And here's what the best part is about the Talmud, to me. The Talmud retains the majority and the minority opinions. And somewhere in the Talmud, maybe you can tell me where, Shmuley, I've read it, but I forget. It says that we're doing this in the Talmud because who knows in hundreds of years whether the minority opinion may be more relevant to people then.
0: Yeah, it's in the Tractate of Ediot.
1: Thank
0: you. Um, which is just amazing um, about, yeah, the importance of, of, of holding on to dissenting views.
1: If there are any attorneys on, on our um, program or others who know the history here, I'd love to know. I've sometimes wondered whether this wonderful tradition in the Talmud inspired the powerful tradition in the Supreme Court to retain minority opinions and to emphasize minority opinions, because sometimes those become the majority opinions. A famous example is one called Plessy versus Ferguson, which tragically said segregation is okay. Blacks are inferior. And almost a hundred years later, finally, we got that reversed. And finally, the tradition of Machochet L'shem arguing for the sake of heaven. It's wonderful guidance. We'll end up with uh, what I'll put together as kind of a summary of the main points I wanna make about what the Torah teaches about speaking truth to power. But just to give you a hint of where we're going arguing for the sake of heaven. What does it mean? It means to argue, not to debate for its own sake, not to debate to show your smarts, your arrogance for power uh, to win over, argue for the sake of learning, trying to discern. Can we dig deeper? What's the true meaning here? How do we get deeper into the meaning? It's a wonderful way to look at this. And in the Talmud, back to that just briefly, it turns out that the famous arguments between Hillel and Shammai often were resolved in terms of uh, Hillel's favor. Why? It says in the, in, in the Talmud that the members of the students of Hillel would always restate what they thought the Shammai opinion was, and they would do it kindly. They would say, if I understand right, this is where you're coming from. And then, but only then, would they say, and here's w- where we differ. Here's how we see it. It's a Tremendous way of respecting and allowing arguments not to become unpleasant, but rather to become arguing to discern. How can we get dig deeper? Why do we sometimes have a hard time with loss aversion? When I finish this, anybody who would like, I'd love to find out uh, your own thoughts. Why do we find it hard to speak truth to power? I'm sorry. And the first one is loss aversion. Loss aversion, according to two wonderful Israeli psychologists, Tversky and Kahneman, Kahneman won a Nobel prize, what they learned in their study of human beings is that most people put more energy into avoiding loss than into achieving gains. Let me say it again. We're more motivated, more energized to, re, to avoid loss than to achieve gains. Talk to a high-performing a athlete, and I've done that, and ask them what games they recall. They'll talk about games that were great wins. But what really sticks with them, what sticks in their craw are those losses. And you don't have to be an athlete. I'm sure any of you who have high expectations for yourself— You know, sometimes it's so hard to let go of that piece that we could have done better. There's a wonderful book on change called Leadership on the Line. If you only read one book about leadership and change, I uh, suggest that one. The first sentence in the first chapter, not the first sentence, but in the first chapter, there's two sentences that are worth the price of the book. And those sentences are, we all know that people resist change, right? And then they say, no, we don't necessarily resist change. People resist loss. If the change is in our interest, we'll probably go for it. But loss is a hard thing to get past. What does that have to do with truth to power? There's a lot of research that shows that many people who deserve a raise don't ask for it. Many people who could get a promotion don't ask for it. Why? When they're interviewed, they said, well, you know, I didn't want to get a no. Or I have a good relationship with my boss. I, You know, I didn't want to muddy the water. I didn't want to have this become unpleasant. So that's one reason why some of us don't want to speak truth to power. Another is maybe we've tried it, it didn't work, or it didn't work with this particular leader or this particular group. Also, there's fears that that arguments are not for the sake of heaven, that arguments can get un- unpleasant, can get personal, can get ugly, retaliation. Um, one of the most interesting pieces in the Torah that I love to read every year when we get to it, God tells Moses to have 12 spies to spy out the land, see what it's like. Come back, and ten, as many of you know, bring a quote false report, saying that yes, it's beautiful milk and honey, but there's these giant, these huge people. We can't overcome them. To say the correct thing, which is, yeah, they're tough, but we can do it. But ten don't. And the question is why. And take a look then at the pair at the. Uh, to quote in Black, we looked like grasshoppers to them, to ourselves. These are the 10 who thought that these were giants they couldn't overcome. We looked like grasshoppers to ourselves, and so we must have looked to them. If you look like a grasshopper, you know, even if talking to somebody only five foot six like me, that seems overwhelming. So our self-concept can be an issue. Quick short story, personal story. I had an aunt, I loved Aunt Dorothy. She was wonderful, no longer with us, but she was a blessed, lovely lady. And there was one time when the city did something and it messed up the the grass and the the area in front of her house, the sidewalk, it should have been repaired. The city didn't know it. They'd done some work, they went. I said, Aunt Dorothy, what did they say when you called? She said, I didn't call. I said, why didn't you call? She said, I'm not the kind of person who complains. I I counted to 10 because I was so (laughs) upset with my Aunt Dorothy, but that taught me a lesson. Her self-concept was, no, you don't complain. Somehow they'll work it out. Let me pause here. Are there other reasons, Shmuley, Rashmuley, others on this program, other reasons why sometimes we don't speak truth to power when perhaps that would be called for? Hi, hi Russ. I I would maybe offer that it's difficult to speak truth when either side of conflict may not be in a space to accept
0: um, by any means that your side may have truth to it.
1: Um, and so therefore, if you're coming from a place of, uh, of failure, um, that, that that conversation may lead to more conflict um, and thereby may not be productive in building relationships um you know and unfortunately I I maybe see that in our in our contemporary lives um often yeah yeah you know the point is not to do something that's that's probably almost guaranteed to lose and not only to lose but perhaps to have real terrible implications uh later on in our podcast I'm going to say a little bit about this woman who who just won the um the lawsuit against former President Trump her claims were validated almost all of them by the the jury. We know from decades, hundreds of years, that many women don't report because their their experiences, Nobody. not only does nobody take them seriously, they end up becoming called the aggressor. They get blamed. So you're exactly right. That can be an enormous barrier. Thank you. One more thought about the difficulties. I want us to go into this with our eyes wide open. Difficulties with speaking truth to power. Um, I mentioned before, uh, arguing for the sake of heaven, Famously, our sages said, here's an example that I'm going to give you, which is the opposite of arguing for the sake of heaven. Quoting from the Torah, Korach, along with Dathan and Abiram, rose up against Moses together with 250 Israelites, chieftains of the community. In other words, they not only challenged Moses, we're about to read the text, but Korach, Dathan, and Abiram brought a huge audience, people with power. Right away, we should be worried. You don't need to be an expert on this to know that this is probably not the way to have someone listen to you. And Korach and his people said, you, Moses and Aaron, you've gone too far, for the community are holy. They're all holy, and the Lord is in their midst. Why then do you raise yourselves above the Lord's congregation? Imagine you're Moses. If this was Korach and Moses, it might have been a reasonable exchange. I mean, this was not the first time somebody disagreed with Moses. Indeed, we know the Israelites had been fetching and, and complaining and arguing for a long time. But it's an impossible situation. Moses ultimately says, let God decide. And God decided that Korah and his people didn't even deserve to live. This is not the way to speak truth to power. And one reason it's not, folks, is that Korah, the way the sages interpreted it, was not really saying, let's have more of a democratic leadership. There is such a thing, wasn't talking about shared leadership. These days we might talk about servant leadership. Karak was really saying, I want power. That's how our sages interpret this. Shmuley, tell me if I'm getting any of this wrong, please. And when you interpret it that way, most people are not gonna go with you. The point is, talk about the issue. You talk about just what you have to gain and it's harder for people to think that this is really a sincere discussion. Uh, it might seem weird to be talking about Cain and Abel, or at least Cain, but there is a little bit of an effort here by Cain to speak truth to power, to come back. So let's take a look at the text. God sees that Cain has killed Abel. God famously asks, Cain, where's your brother? And Abel says, am I, am I my brother's keeper? When I was 10 years old, I asked my mom what she thought them meant. She said, you're your brother's brother. <laughs> She wanted to make it very clear, we Jews are responsible. But Cain wasn't taking responsibility, so that's part of the issue. He killed someone, and then he's not taking responsibility. God, if you till the soil, this is the punishment. It shall no longer yield its strength to you. You shall become a ceaseless wanderer on earth. Cain, listen, my punishment is too great to bear. Now, let me just stop there. Unfortunately, I'm not great at deciphering Hebrew. But I've read about this sentence, and uh, shmuel you may be able to help here. One um, interpretation is that the same Hebrew could be read, is my sin too great to be forgiven? In other words, instead of saying, hey, I can't handle it, it's a question, which is another way to talk truth to power, to pose a question. Is my sin too great to be forgiven? Perhaps Cain is seeing the, you know, the importance of, demonstrating he's got to take responsibility. Since you banished me from the soil, I must avoid your presence, which Cain doesn't want, and become a restless wanderer. Anyone who meets me may kill me. Now, according to the sages, God pulls back a bit. I promise if anyone kills Cain, sevenfold vengeance shall be taken on him. Well, that doesn't sound like pulling back, but listen. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest anyone who met him should kill him people who study this time period say that a mark meant that people believed there was a uh, divine protection so that nobody would kill Cain. Cain's got a mark. So why did the, the God pull back from a more disastrous punishment? And one thought is that Cain suggested to God that Cain was repentant, that even though he didn't take responsibility before, now he feels like he's done the wrong thing. So one thought about speaking truth to power Sometimes we're talking to people and there's a problem and maybe we've been part of it. Maybe you go to a teacher and you say, I'm unhappy with how my kid's being handled, but maybe you haven't been on top of your kid to make sure your kid did homework. When we take a little responsibility, as long as it's honest, as long as it's sincere, often the other person is a little bit more open to think about what you're asking them to do. So that's one example on the more positive side. Second example, this is the one I mentioned earlier where God and Abraham have this wonderfully interesting debate about how many righteous people must there be in Saddam for God to not wipe it out. But you know what, folks? Anytime we look at a text, and certainly the Torah, we need to know the context. God's already formed a covenant with Abraham. Abraham's got a tremendous responsibility and opportunity God visits sometime later and says, you will have a son, Abraham, in his old age, and Sarah, they laugh, they can't believe it. So they've started to form a relationship. There's been some back and forth between them. So when God sees evil in Saddam, I'm reading here, God says, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do, since Abraham is to become the father of a great nation? According to some people, you could read the Hebrew to mean God is talking to God's self. I wonder if I should tell... Abraham, before I do this, because God's thinking about wiping out the nation. Now, I don't know about you folks, but every time I read this, I think, what? The source of everything wonders whether it's time to hit the pause button and inquire what Abraham thinks, or even give him a heads up. Why does God need to confer with Abraham? God sees what's happening in Saddam. I find it just so fascinating. I think the only way to understand that, well, I shouldn't say the only way. There's 70 ways, no doubt. But one way to understand it is God feels some confidence in Abraham. God trusts Abraham's judgment. Maybe even God is wondering if wiping out Saddam is an overreaction. We don't know, but we can wonder. At any rate, this is a hint. This is a hint that God is open to talking with Abraham. Let's see what happens next. God goes on to describe in some detail the terrible things going on being done by the Sodomites. Abraham, sorry, will you wipe out, will you sweep away the innocent along with the guilty? What if there are 50 innocent along with the guilty? Now, that's that's a nice opening statement. People who know about negotiations say you should start kind of high, maybe beyond what you want. So Abraham's saying maybe just 50 and then he's going to make it sh- smaller. But watch what happens next, folks. Abraham goes on, doesn't give God a chance to, butt in, far be it from you, God, to do such a thing, to bring death upon the innocent as well as the guilty. And now the kicker, shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly? This sounds like kind of overkill, folks, like, whoa, isn't Abraham going too far? And indeed, some of the sages say this was audacious, a lot of chutzpah. One, not sage, but uh, someone named Israel Zangwill, one of the earliest Zionists, on the other hand says, the last line shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly. Zangwill argues that's the most powerful consequential line in the whole Torah. So how do we understand this? Well, first of all, we need to understand that God has never asked any other human for their thoughts. When the earth was filled with sin, God God told Noah what to do. It wasn't, Noah, what do you think? There wasn't a vote on where, what happens to Adam and Eve, but now God is ready to listen. As I said, I think there's the assumption is there's a relationship. And I think it's also possible to argue that Abraham is arguing in God's favor. Why do I say that? Again, context matters, folks. Prior to becoming Abraham, when, when he's still called Abram, God tells Abram that someday Abram's descendants will be enslaved by other people doesn't mention Egypt, God says by other people, they'll, they'll be enslaved for 400 years, but God will remember them and redeem them and make justice, bring justice to the oppressors. If I'm Abraham, I'm thinking, oh, well, this is a God who, who believes in justice, who believes in fair play. So with that in my mind, shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly could be read as a statement of confidence, a statement of esteem you are you are a being of justice and i'm surprised that you might kill the innocent along with the with the guilty it could be a sign of a sign of i think that this may not be what god really wants and the evidence is maybe not because god says well if there's 50 we won't go ahead and yeah. then if it's 45 and then if it's 40 Put another way, folks, and this is a great lesson about speaking truth to power, I think Abraham is asking God to act according to God's own standards. Let me say that again. I think Abraham is saying, and this is true anytime we speak truth to power, it can be a very powerful way, a very savvy way to go about it. I think Abraham is saying, please, act according to the standards you've already declared. Don't lower your standards. The incident of the golden calf. This may be the most powerful example of speaking truth to power, folks, because here it wasn't that God was upset that there was sinning in Saddam. Here God was so angry, as you'll see in a moment, that God is ready to wipe out God's own people. Hurry down. Moses is up, I'm sorry, Moses is up on the mountain getting the Ten Commandments, the tablets themselves. He doesn't come down when he's supposed to in 40 days or when he's expected. The people demand a golden calf. Aaron makes it for him. And God is beyond angry. Hurry down, for the people whom you brought out of Egypt have made themselves a golden calf and bowed low to it and sacrificed to it. Now let me be that my anger may blaze forth and that I may destroy them. Let's just stop there, folks, if you can avoid reading the rest. Let me be that my anger may blaze forth and that I may destroy them. May destroy them. Wow, God is beyond furious. But this phrase, let me be, what is this about? There's a Torah stage from hundreds of years ago who says, I think that this is a a request masked as a statement. I think it's a request masked as a statement. He says, I think God is aware that this may be an overreach, wiping out the whole people, and is indirectly saying to Moses, don't let me be. I don't want my anger to blaze forth. Moses and, and 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 God have a very strong, even intimate relationship, if I could use that phrase. What does Moses say? Let not your anger blaze forth against your people. Let not the Egyptians say, quote, it was with evil intent that he, God, delivered them only to kill them off in the mountains. Please, God, renounce the plan to kill your people. And God does. There are some people who are killed, I think 3,000, but it's nothing like what God imagined. Let me be," says God, and Moses' response, I think, could be seen as several ways. Obviously, one might be indirectly saying, "God, consider your legacy. Is what you want people—people people who have been your enemy, Egyptians who enslaved your people—do you want people like that who have a vind- you know who are vindictive, who are out to get, find something wrong with you? Do you want them to be able to say this?" that God had an evil intent when he delivered the people. He was just going to kill them instead of letting us be half slaves. Another way to put it is, I think God, I think Moses may be saying, is this really in your interest, dear God? When I'm sometimes consulting with leaders, let me just take this away from Golden Calf for a second. And I'm with a leader who's very strong on doing something with delight, with anger, whatever it is. And I think maybe the person is so strong, they're not, they're not thinking a few steps ahead. They're not thinking around the corner. They're not anticipating what might happen. What I sometimes say, friends, is, okay, uh, Bob, okay, Marilyn, I realize this is really important. This is what you want to do. Maybe that's the way to get to the goal. Now, if you will, let's play this out for a second. And those are the words I use. Let's play this out. And then we walk together, not Russ telling my client, but together we say, okay, what are the possible next steps? What are the possible outcomes? And not always, but frequently, The person who's determined says, well, you know, I hadn't thought about that. Maybe I can still what I want to do, but maybe do it in a different way. I think Moses, with his relationship with God, with the trust, is helping God hit the pause button to say, is that the best way? I think it's a wonderful example of speaking truth to power. Rav Shmuley corrected me. There is at least one other example where Israelites asked for a law to be changed and it was changed, um, this is my favorite, in part because it's about women who, as we know, didn't have all the rights and responsibilities or the responsibilities that men had among the Israelites. But more to the point of what we're talking about today, speaking truth to power, I think these five daughters give us a tremendous model, a tremendous role model of how to do speaking to truth to power effectively. These five daughters had a father, he died, he left no son, and the law at the time said his holdings, whatever he owned, would go to a male, a nephew, a brother, a brother-in-law. These five daughters would have nothing, it happened they were unmarried. They had done their homework, they knew the law, they also sensed by certain things that were happening, including a census that had just been taken, sometimes the census was taken just before a big move, they sensed that the people were soon going to enter the promised land. And then, indeed, there was land to divide up, assuming they could conquer the land, but their father wasn't there. Whatever land would go to some other male, some male. The daughters would be left with nothing. So let's see what they say, and then let's look at and kind of parse it together. The daughters of Zalopahad came forward I put dot, dot, dot. I didn't want to put too much text here. They then name, the text names the five daughters. Sometimes in the Torah, women are involved with something important, but their names aren't mentioned. They name those. I think the text wants us to feel like something important is going to happen here. They, the women, stood before Moses. and these the priest, for the priest at the tent of meeting. So they're in front of the most powerful people at the most powerful place together, united. And they said... Our father died in the wilderness. He was not one of Koros factions. We talked about Korah earlier. I think, let me just stop there. I think the women are, are anticipating maybe Moses will wonder if our father was loyal to him or was he among those rebels. We don't want Moses to dismiss us just because he has suspicions. So they anticipate he was not among Koros factions. He has left no sons. They're they did their homework, they know the implications. Now here comes the request, the ask, let not our father's name be lost to his clan just because he had no son. Give us a holding among our father's kinsmen. They didn't say a lot, but I think they demonstrated a lot of what we're talking about. Let me offer you my thoughts. I'd love to get yours. First, they went forward as five. As I said, they were in the holy place among all the power people. I think one might have been overwhelmed. On the other hand, it wasn't like Korach who brought hundreds, five daughters. They all had something in common. (laughs) Um, A court would say they had standing. That is to say something was going to happen and they had an interest in it. They were strategic. They referred to Korach. Our father didn't go with him. Third, they knew the law. Our father had no sons. They didn't have to say the implications. All the men there knew the implications. He had no sons. They did their homework. Fourth, they weren't threatening. They didn't threaten the male hierarchy. They could have said, oh, and by the way, in addition to changing this law, there's 15 others that give men much more um, standing than we women should have, and we think you should change all 15. They didn't do that. That would have been too much, too threatening. They said, let's change this one law. Let me say one more thing about this and I'll go to the other point I wanna make. Reading this every year, I think about uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, not in political terms, but in a different way. Ruth Bader Ginsburg, as many of you know, as an attorney, had a passion for something very close to what we're talking about, women's equality. Her first case was about a male who Ruth Bader Ginsburg felt was discriminated against because of a law. Ruth Bader Ginsburg was strategic. She didn't wanna be known as someone who only cares about women. What she wanted was equality for both genders. More importantly, despite what some of her legal advisors and her political advisors suggested, Ruth Bader Ginsburg never said, here are the 10 laws that ought to be changed. She went one law at a time. And after 30 some years, that became a lot. So this is, I'm saying something here that's not only about truth to power, but really is about a strategy for change. Sometimes we need to ask for everything or a great deal when there's a huge wrong. But often we can be more effective incrementally. The daughters wanted one law changed. And finally, they were not being selfish. Let not our father's name be lost to his clan. It seems to me that any man standing there listening to that that those women, any man with children, male or female, would appreciate that their interest, their concern is largely about their father's name. They revered their father. They didn't want the name lost. So if you're sitting there wondering, what are these women really all about? What are their interests? Are they selfish? What's going on here? I think they put that away. Let not our father's name be lost. If you're a man standing there and you have no sons and you have daughters, I think you know, among the, the people with Moses at the tent of meeting, I think that they could empathize very well. Those daughters cared. They revered their father. They cared about his name. I didn't put this in here, but the women appealed to Moses. And while the text doesn't tell us why, apparently Moses thought it was above his pay grade because Moses immediately says, God, it's up to you. What do you think? <laughs> and and the best part of it is the plea, God says, the plea of Zelophehad's daughters is just, transfer their father's share to them. Now, in interest of full disclosure, and we'll finish with this folks, well, I'll finish with one more slide and then wanna open it up. Um, It turns out in the next chapter or two of the book of Numbers, this great win is is, uh, reduced a little bit. The details don't matter, but it's also another interesting insight into change. Sometimes we take three steps forward and one step back and one to the side. So what the women thought they had won was diminished a little bit, not entirely, but they did a great job of teaching us how to speak truth to power. So let me finish with this. I love this photo of MLK and and, uh, LBJ. MLK is making his case, LBJ is, it's not clear what, but we know uh, MLK frequently spoke truth to people in power. The first one is relationships matter. In In the workplace, if you think the boss is doing something that's not correct, but you don't have a close relationship, it might be good to do the next bullet, be strategic. Should others be with you? Should someone else make the, make the ask? The fact that you think something should change doesn't necessarily mean that you or I should do it. I frequently am in an advocacy role because of this group that Julie mentioned, a group that supports immigrants and refugees, but sometimes I know I'm the last person to go forward and make a request. So relationships matter. It helps to be strategic. Is this the time to do it? If I'm going to my boss, is my boss overwhelmed with some crisis now? Better wait. Or even with um, not truth to power, even with your partner, your wife, your spouse, your husband. We know in relationships, you have to be sensitive to those things. Third one, do your homework. What are the person's main interests? When Abraham negotiated with God over the plight of Saddam, Abraham knew that God's interest was not in killing innocent people. That wasn't in God's interest. God's interest was in wiping out sinning people. Knowing the other person's interest and then speaking to that interest, that often gets people's attention. Fourth, how can we frame our comments to address those interests? Let me refer briefly to the trial that just ended with um, a woman named E. Jean Carroll, who sued former President Trump, and she won most of what she wanted. I'm going to read you a quote. The quote is that at one point in the trial, she said, I, this is E. Jean Carroll, the woman bringing the charges, I am a member of the silent generation. Women like me were taught to keep our chins up and not to complain. What was the context? The context was the other attorney kept asking her, well, why didn't you scream? Why didn't you yell? Why did you wait 15 or 20 years to bring this charge? And her response is, in my generation, we didn't speak up. We tried to keep our chin down and do, do hard work. My parents were part of that generation. I think that gave her great credibility with the jury. I don't know if that was conscious or not, but we're talking about framing our comments. She could have come up with some other reason. You know, I I got confused. I was worried it would come back. She said, "Ah, that's how I was raised. I've also mentioned this one before. Let's play it out. Talk to people in power and ask them, what do they think is going to be the logical consequence of what they're planning to do? Are they open to seeing that it might not be so perfect? And finally, what we started with, ma'chokhet l'shem l'shamayim, l'shem Shemaim. Argue for the sake of heaven. See if we can argue, take the higher ground. Look for what's real, look for what's true, not to be boasting, not to grab power. So Alex, I'm gonna stop the share and invite anybody to ask questions, to offer comments. The floor is entirely yours.
2: Actually, I see there was um, one question from Ethan in the chat, which was in order to be effectively strategic, is it ever acceptable to lie or not tell the whole truth in order to be able to eventually speak the truth to power?
1: Well, there are times to lie and and our tradition is very clear on that. I mean, just to take a crazy, not a crazy, unfortunately, but a, a, an extreme example, somebody comes at you with a knife and says, "Where's your father?" You don't tell the truth, of course. Um, is it any is it ever okay to lie for strategic reasons? Alex, was that how it was put?
2: Yeah, I think that's that's what Ethan was getting at here.
1: Okay. In general, the answer would be no, but in some specific cases, I can think of times when it would be yes. When Jewish leaders went to Franklin Delano Roosevelt, who was doing precious little, if anything, to save Jews, even after he knew the truth, to me, it would have been okay to lie in a way that was more likely to get his attention. Is that a good idea in general? No. Do we want to do it? No. But here were obviously millions of lives at stake. If we have to tell a lie to get his attention, yeah, I'm all for that. If I have to tell a lie to keep someone, to to avoid them doing harm to someone else, if it's real harm, I can support that. Not a lot, but yeah. Great question. Great question. I want to say not only with questions, but with your own thoughts about truth to power. Some of you may have your own ideas of what's worked or what hasn't worked. That would be great. How about you, Alex? (laughs)
2: <laughs> um yeah i don't know you're you're putting me on the spot but uh let, let me think about it that's fair everyone's very quiet today
1: that's fair see if something comes to you Alex. you probably have an example of seeing raf speak truth to power
2: yes um i mean there are so many it's hard it's hard to think of just one um i was actually thinking of um like all the articles that we have listed on our website of all the wonderful work that uh, Rav Shmuley does in the community with so many different causes. Um, as, as similar to you, um, standing up for refugees um, and asylum seekers, a lot of work to help the homeless, um, a lot of advocacy work. Um, uh, another thing I know that we've been involved in recently is trying to make kind of safer spaces for um. Nonprofits, um, like faith-based nonprofits in Arizona.
1: So If you have a thought about any approach you've seen Rav Shmuley take that you think we might benefit from, um, I would welcome that. I did see recently Rav Shmuley and a group of people are raising money to get mobile showers for people for people who are homeless. Um, I'm assuming, yeah, yeah. Yes. That's not exactly truth to power, but that's social justice, which which is parallel. Okay, so here. Um...
3: Oh, I was gonna just say something. It's uh, I was actually out on being a suspected whistleblower. And, you know, it's risky. I mean, this was at work. Um, it was a pharmacy department in a hospital. I was a pharmacist. There were errors being made by um, a not very good new computer system and those of us who brought up the errors were all let go. So, yeah, and yet, you know, somebody asked me, well, would you have kept your mouth shut if otherwise? And I thought, probably not because people's lives were at stake, but really our director just went into a cover-up and um, yeah, that was speaking truth the power and losing. And (laughs) I don't think it's unusual.
1: Painful. Well, listen, uh, is it Lauren? Yeah, yeah. Lauren, unfortunately, but since, you know, speaking truth to all of us, there's a lot of research that shows that more often than not, whistleblowers suffer. Yeah. It's a terrible indictment on on managers, uh, public and private. Somebody finds a way to get back. Occasionally, and I know the State Department is like this, some organizations have, in the State Department, it's called the dissent line. Uh, employees there tell me they've come to trust it. You can post anonymously a dissent, meaning a a concern. I think what we're doing here is wrong. I'm concerned that this embassy is not uh, being, uh, got enough security, whatever it is. And apparently it never comes back, but that's tragically, that's an exception. Alex, if you have any, I, I don't want to put you on the spot. If you have any example of how Shmuley, I know he had to step out for a moment how he came at some example of speaking truth to power. Go ahead. And if not, not.
2: Um, I think just in general, one thing that he does, which um, I find is effective, and and you talked about this as well, which was kind of like knowing the law um because i think it's you know it's one thing to appeal to people's emotional side and that's effective as well but when you can really back it up with text and uh, using like the torah and things like that to kind of prove your point um i think that that's uh, very effective to some people who you know maybe maybe they don't share your opinion but you can't really argue with fact
1: absolutely let me finish well let me add a couple of things and if anybody else has a thought or a question please go ahead um one way to make an argument more persuasive is not only to show facts, but also to include a story, a compelling story. People who study the brain will tell you that facts are helpful, but stories stick. <laughs> marketing, In marketing terms, they're stickier. They stay with us longer. I'm going to give you an example. It's not about speaking truth to power, but I think you'll see what I mean in terms of story sticking. I went to a fundraising event for whatever it was. And the person gave the pitch, and then he told the following story. And he had a visual, and the visual showed the state of Israel. And he says, the Jordan River runs into the Sea of Galilee and to the Dead Sea. The Sea of Galilee is alive. There's flora, there's fauna, there's always flowers growing. There's not a lot of seaweed. It's a pleasure. You can dive into the waters. It smells good. It tastes good. It's a sea that's beautiful. beautiful. The water goes in from the north, comes to the south. So water is going through the Sea of Galilee. Then it goes into the Dead Sea. The Dead Sea is well-named. He said, it's dead. There's nothing growing. You couldn't dive in because your eyes would go crazy. It's filled with salt. The Dead Sea only takes. It only takes water. Water doesn't go through it. The Dead Sea takes but doesn't give. Here comes the punchline. The Sea of Galilee takes and gives. And then he finished by saying, which kind of sea do you want to be? The sea that takes and gives, or only the sea that takes. <laughs> I wrote a bigger check than I thought I would. Telling a story when it captures in a human way what you're trying to, to go after can be compelling. And finally, a story which makes a different kind of point about truth to power. A friend of mine was working in a library, and the librarian was terrible. The librarian was lousy with the clients. They call them patrons in library world. The librarian was not keeping up with what's going on in the world. The library treated the staff like trash, only said negative things. If all you got was a grunt one day, my friend told me you were doing pretty well. But my friend was mostly concerned that the patrons were being mistreated. The number of people coming in was going down. You get the picture. The friend tried to talk to the director. That was a disaster. They didn't fire him, him, but It didn't go well. So here's the point. Here's what I want to explain to you. And I learned from this. My friend went with one other, not 10 other, one other librarian, librarian. The two of them approached the boss's boss. Now they're taking a risk. They had tried going to the boss, didn't work. They went to the boss's boss. And here's what they said. Thank you for your time. We are uncomfortable coming here because we are not complainers. We're professionals. We're here to do a quality job. We're coming here because we thought you might want to know the impact of some of our director's behaviors. And then they went through knowing the facts, as you said, Alex, several examples. Our director does this, this is why the patrons get upset. This, this is why our our stacks are in lousy shape. And then they repeated, we're uncomfortable coming to you because we do not like to complain. As professionals, we thought that we feel that it's in our responsibility to have the library go as well as it can we thought you might want that information. The boss's boss was very happy that they brought it to him. There were no repercussions. Now, I can't say that the library director, the person who was doing such a bad job, became a new person, but for a while, things did improve. I tell you the story because I love the way those two people did it. One by himself or herself might've been too much, not 10, acknowledging this is not comfortable opening up, showing a little vulnerability. That was a great story. Thank you all for tuning in.
2: And uh, and thank you so much for joining us today. Um, as Rabbi Shmuley mentioned, um, we will have uh, Rabbi Dr. Danielle Hartman this Sunday. Um, and then also next week on Thursday, we will be joined by Dr. Johnny Schnitzer for his talk on the prayer book. And that'll be at 10 a.m. Pacific time. So we hope that you can all join us for that as well. And uh, thank you all for being here. Have a great rest of your day.